open up to Ezekiel as I explain the new birth. You don't have to raise your hand when I ask you, do you love the Lord? Do you love the knowledge of your forgiveness? Do you love the knowledge of what he's done for you? Do you love the knowledge of what he's doing for you? Do you love the hope that God gives you? Can you be in desperate times knowing that there's this living hope? It's real. It's not something that you have to make up, but it's real. It's there. It's speaking to you. And sometimes the most trying, tumultuous times of your life, you have this peace that transcends all understanding. He's always there for you. Understand something. The reason you have that is because of the promise we're going to read today. Do not think for a moment God owes it to any of us. He has chosen to give it to us. There's a big difference. God owes us nothing, but he gives us everything. And so we're going to see something in the Old Testament speaking about the new birth. It's found in Ezekiel. Uh, Jackie? Yes. Starting in verse 24. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen to God. He's going to make us careful to obey his rules. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these awesome and great promises you've given us, Father God. That you are the one who have called us into your kingdom. You are the one who cleansed us. You're the one who gave us a new heart. You're the one who took the old heart. You're the one, Father God, that is doing these great and wonderful things. That you're actually causing us to walk in your statutes. And we actually love being careful to obey your rules. We thank you for every good thing you've given us, Father God. And this is all empowered by the Holy Spirit and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Open up our hearts and our minds, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I preached a similar message about five months ago out of this text and out of John 3. I wanted to revisit it again to explain a little more of just the privileged state we're in. And we gather here, I want you to know a lot of young Christians, you know, and we're busy in life and we come to church and and we enjoy church, but we have busy lives. But I, I want to explain something to you, the great privilege we have of being here. I don't think a lot of Christians understand the privilege, and you are privileged. If you are born again, if you have the Spirit of God within you, understand something. This is a great privilege, a privilege that Moses in the Old Testament didn't have, Abraham didn't have, it, David didn't have. The, all the prophets in the Old Testament can't compare to what we have today as New Testament believers. The peace and the joy and the hope and the comfort that we have from the Holy Spirit instantaneously. The Old Testament saying had nothing like that. They had no idea of what we have today. And you know, and this brings me to another question as a pastor. Prayerfully, you understand you're enjoying your, your salvation. You're enjoying being a Christian. You're enjoying what God has done for you, what he's doing for you. Because if you're not enjoying God, you're going to be in for a rough ride. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's going to be rough on you. It's going to be cold obedience. You're just trying to make it work. You're, I want you to know something. If you're here saying, Brian, I'm still missing something, you might need this message. We are called to enjoy the Lord. And sometimes, you know what I'm enjoying the most? 
I'm forgiven. God, you forgave me. Thank you so much. And that's enjoying God. Repentance is enjoying God. So on and so forth. But this prophecy came to Israel at a strange time in Israel's history. Israel at this point was being, they were so disobedient that God was taking them from their own land and starting to scatter them all around the nations as he's promised. He says, you keep my law and obey me in Deuteronomy 28. He goes, guess what? You're going to keep the land. You're going to prosper in the land. We're going to have a great, wonderful relationship. And one day you'll see a new kingdom come. But guess what? They were never obedient. They were never loving to God. They were never faithful to God. So one day God had to come and start scattering them. And what happened? Because of the civil war that happened between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms of Israel, God slowly but surely started taking them apart inch by inch. Until there was no nation left. Ezekiel is prophesying at a time when there's still some more Israelites in the land. But it's almost at the end. They're all going into Babylonian captivity. And he's now prophesying after the first 35 chapters of doom. He starts to prophesy on, uh, uh, what can I say, not rehabilitation, but... They're coming back to God. God is drawing them back from the captivity. He's, he's given them certain promises. And these promises are partially fulfilled when Jerusalem came back. I mean, when the Israelites came back out of Babylon in about 560 AD, they came back and they came into the land and they sort of had this little temple made. And it was never the same again. I want you to know that. But the partial fulfillment is they never went back into idolatry again. They did it. They never had the full fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. But they never went back into idolatry again. So when Christ came, he was not living amongst an idolatrous nation. They weren't the best people, but they were Jews. They weren't struggling with all the other idolatrous pagan nations and gods as they did in the Old Testament. God truly cleansed them of their idolatry, but they still needed a new heart. They weren't sold out for God yet. It was only a partial fulfillment. We're taking it from a New Testament perspective. And I want you to understand the privilege you and I have to worship God and to honor God and to enjoy God and to love God and to share God. Please don't ever take it as uh, for granted what Christ has done for us. All God's eggs are in one basket. Jesus Christ. If you're outside that, you're lost. We are living in a world that has no hope at all. I want to make this clear. There is absolutely no hope for any human being outside of Jesus Christ. At all. No matter how good they are, no matter how good they think they are, no matter how religious they are, it makes no difference. You need a new heart. And this is the problem. Ancient Israel goes to show, they're like the microcosm of how bad you are. They are God's people. And yet, they still cannot obey God because their heart is so idolatrous. They love sin rather than they love God. God worked with them toe-to-toe and eyeball-to-eyeball. He loved them for over 1,500 years and tried to make something of them. And they constantly failed and constantly failed. Just the way you would fail like we failed before Christ came into our life. And guess what? We might not have it all together right now, but 
You have to be in a better place today when you were last year. You have to be in a better place today when you were 10 years ago. If you are a Christian 24 hours, you are in a better place one day later from the time you accepted Christ. Period. And we don't deserve it. God made a promise that one day he's going to do this, and this is what he's done for us. It's not about rules and regulations, no matter how sincere we are. We can never satisfy God. Even today, if you thought you had a good day or a good week, guess what? You can't satisfy God. His claims are perfect obedience. But what does it mean to be a Christian? Jesus satisfied God for us perfectly. And that's our joy, and that's our hope, and that's our peace. So when I come face to face with this failure that's in me, or you come face to face with your failure, guess what? You're totally accepted by God because of Christ. In the Old Testament, guess what they had to do? You had to go get an ox, had to go get a goat get a chicken or a pigeon, you had to get something according to your socioeconomic uh, ability and you would buy something and you would have to bring it to the priest and then the priest would counsel you over the sin and then you would lay hands on the, on the animal and there would be a confession of, uh, uh, of sins and then they would take the animal and slaughter the animal. It was a whole religious cultic practice. Guess what we do? God forgive me. God, as, as the sin is coming out of my mouth, I'm saying, God, forgive me. I'm doing it, God. I shouldn't be doing it, God. God, forgive me. Are you with me? So the point is, I want to, that what we have today as Christians are so far removed from 2,500 years ago or 3,000 years, they had no idea of how spectacular this new covenant that Ezekiel is talking about. I'm going to make this covenant with you. The means to all this work is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit only works, and I say it again, only works in conjunction with all the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never speak to us about something else or somebody else. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak to me about John Calvin, about Martin Luther, about any, any teacher that I like and I admire. He witnesses to my spirit about one person. Jesus Christ, that's it. He might use other teachers, but they're pointing me to Christ always. His ministry is on our hearts and minds all the time. It's a spiritual operation. We cannot manipulate it. We can't counterfeit it. But we can notice when the Holy Spirit has been genuinely at work in someone's life. And I want everybody here to take a good evaluation of where you are in your Christian life. There are certain spiritual fruits that follow a genuine conversion. The first spiritual fruit that Christ died for your sins and that you've repented is found in now we know I can bring nothing positive to God that only Christ purchased my salvation. That is one of the first fruits you understand. That Christ totally has forgiven me of every sin ever committed or ever will be committed 
solely on his work on Calvary, on the cross, when he was dying, when he was bleeding, when he was gasping for his last breath of air, when it got dark for three hours, at that moment, all our sins were atoned for once and for all, period. Can't add to it, can't subtract from it. The next fruit is a true repentance of past sins and, and, and lifestyles. When someone becomes a Christian, is a, a, a religious reflections start to take place. They start to be a little internal, start taking a, a personal inventory of our lives and, and the sins in our life, and we start dealing with these things almost immediately. One of the next things that happens in a genuine Christian's life is water baptism. Water baptism is an outward sign of genuine inward faith. It doesn't save anybody. But those who are generally saved know in their heart that water baptism is a rite of passage that Christ commands us to enter into the church. As a pastor, I deal with, if someone confesses Christ, if I see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, I'm there to my brother and my sister. But I cannot generally be at ease until I see water baptism. Water baptism is the sign I am entirely in. When I'm working with people, and I know people for a long period of time, I know the ins and outs of their life, I know them. But as a pastor, when pastors start you know, uh, dealing with a flock, you can only deal with so many one-on-one. After a while, you can't deal, you don't know everybody. But water baptism is that same pastor, I'm saved. You're telling your family, I'm saved. You're telling the world, I'm saved. You're telling everybody, God, I have read the fine print of the New Testament. I am a sinner saved purely by grace. I fully accept it into my life. This is your church. These are your people. The common denominator is you dying for our sins. I am in. I am all in, God. I've read the fine print. I'm being water baptized. I'm following you in your death so I can live for you in my life. Are you with me? That says a lot to us as pastors. The next sign is continue heartfelt fellowship with other believers in the participation of communion. Communion is no piece of bread and some, and some grape juice. Communion is at a time when you're passing out the elements, everything stops. It's almost like time-lapse photography. It slows down. And the elements are coming by right away. We're going to this spontaneous, where is my heart? God, cleanse my heart. What's going on with all the interpersonal relationships with my brother? It's about not coming into the body of Christ. It's being a healthy member of the body of Christ. That's what communion is. A healthy member of the body of Christ. I'm not fighting with this one. I'm not fighting with the usher. I'm not fighting with the pastor's wife. I'm not fighting with the associate pastor. I'm not fighting with the worship leader. I hate this one. I hate this. Oh, Lord, where's the body and the blood? No, 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 no. When you take the body and the blood, you're actually telling the pastors, I'm right with the church. Are you with me? It's a serious issue. It's not about being morally perfect. It's about hearts being perfect with each other. Caring for one another. Not holding little idiosyncrasies against each other. Personality problems. This is the kingdom of God. You don't deal with person. This is the kingdom of God. So communion is saying, I'm in. I'm all in. And last, the means to all this change is the true preaching of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can do it. Nothing but a clear, articulate presentation of Christ and his gospel. 
this, 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 this great gift that man needs, that's what changes the human heart. Today I'm going to speak what it means to be on the inside. What does it mean on the inside? What it means to our minds, our affections, our wills. What does that all mean? How does it touch my soul? This, this born again, this being born of the Holy Spirit, being born from above, being a disciple of Christ, being water baptized, taking communion. What does this all mean? Well, he gives us some clues here. Verse 24, if we can have that up there. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. What does that mean for you and me today? That is the drawing power of the Holy Spirit to bring all of us back to God from wherever we are in our life. You could be a good person in a religious home. You could be a bad person in a jail cell. You can be a philosopher. You can be a pastor. You can be whatever you want to be. But until you come home to be with Jesus, you're outside of God. And God draws us. And this is one of the things people don't realize about the drawing power of God. When you are speaking to somebody about Christ and, and people are showing interest, you don't have to do a thing. Just continue to love them and share Jesus with them. God's the one who brings people out of other nations. God's the one who draws you from ancestral religion. Do you know how hard it is for people to leave ancestral religion? Do you know what that is? Ancestral religion, when you grow up in mainstream denominations like Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy and Russian Orthodoxy, it's hard to leave that because what's the family going to say? The family's going to get all uptight that you're leaving the church, you're leaving the, you're leaving the faith, and many people won't come. And that's one of the hardest things to God to draw up there. Guess what he does, though? He draws people out of ancestral religions. He'll go right into a jail cell. As I was preparing this lesson, I brought a friend of mine, 17 years in jail. I didn't know him when he was in jail, but after four years, he said he was in the prison cell reading the Bible. And like the, the glory of God filled this place. He went in as a drug addict, maintained his drug addiction in jail, amongst other things, and he got saved, and he said the cell became a sanctuary. He said he's never felt such peace in his life. You see, God went in there and drew him home. He went right in there. The Bible was there. God was there. And he faithfully served God for another 12, 13, 14 years in jail. And so on and so forth. This is what God does. God draws us to himself. How did you become a Christian? What made you even entertain thoughts of being a Christian or following Christ? How did you get to this place? How did I get to this place? God draws us. And Artie knows because we spoke to him many times. Share with each other how God drew. Ask Artie. His testimony. Ex Lorraine, her testimony. Ex Gail, her testimony. Ex people. So, when did you get saved? How did you get saved? I love that conversation. Because you will hear the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit drawing people from addictions and sins and religion. Even good people. Good people that don't think they need Christ. The Holy Spirit has to draw them into a close relationship with God and realize, I am a sinner. When you hear the good person say, I too am a sinner. That, that's glorious. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. 
And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. There's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for total forgiveness. All shame, all guilt, all of it, gone, instantaneous. This is a wonderful work of grace on our conscience. Let me give you an illustration. piece of antique. So a piece of uh, an antique that was painted over so many times, it lost its luster. It just looked like a piece of furniture shoved in the corner with things on it, knickknacks on it, paint on it. But when it was stripped down from all those years, all those coats of paint, so all of a sudden something beautiful started to emerge. That's what God does for us. When he cleanses us, and he removes the shame he removes the guilt. And all of a sudden, God's not our enemy that we run away from. God is our Father. He's our Savior. He's our friend. There's no hindrance. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Because the Bible teaches us something about this. Guilt and shame in Scripture is a picture of mankind running away from God. When Adam and Eve fell into that sin, our first parents fell into sin... The first thing they did after they made their little fig leaves and loincloths and were running around, when God showed up, do you know what they did? They ran and hid. That's shame and guilt. Who said that you were going to die? Their conscience was killing them. Their conscience was tormenting them. They had no idea that when God showed up, the only natural thing a person can do is run. Do you ever realize why people give you the, the, the two-step when you start speaking to them about church and you start speaking to them about God and they come up with all sorts of concoctions? They're running from God. I'm sitting down in the Panatico eating lunch this week and there's a gentleman I know from the gym for many years and uh, never really had a spiritual talk with him, but I'm sitting there, I'm reading uh, some theology book on the New Testament. He goes, oh, some light reading, you know? And I said, well, I, I said, I take my soul serious. I get right into it. I said, yeah, I don't want to leave my soul to chance. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't want to go to hell. So I take it very serious. I read the fine print. I want to know if Jesus is God, I want to know what's going on over here. And with a smirk, and a smile and a lot of nervous laughter. He goes, yeah, I got the gift of gab. He goes, I can talk my way into anything. So I said, it's not what you can talk yourself into. It's what you got to talk yourself out of. And he knew what I was saying. I said, don't worry about getting into heaven. You got to talk yourself out of hell first. The condemnation of God is on all people until we are saved. God's not condemning a man when he dies. The whole world's condemned already. John chapter 3. The whole world is condemned. It's not getting into heaven. You've got to make sure that you receive God's grace to get out of hell. Amen. Out of hell. That's where we go. That's where people go. This is the reality of it. And God saves us from that. That's what it means to be saved. Saved from what? Ask yourself, what am I saved from? Pastor, what am I saved from? I'm glad you asked me. From the wrath of God. Praise God. I'm going to know that. Everything else after salvation is preservation unto salvation. God is preserving us now to the end. Everything he's doing is preserving us to the end.
when we fall short. Anybody fall short this week? Don't raise your hands. Did you say, God, forgive me again? Okay. Do you notice what you're not doing anymore? You're not running. God's wiped away our shame and our guilt. And we don't run anymore. We go to him. God's done that. You didn't do that. I couldn't do that for you. God's done that. That's a promise of God. We shared this before. As John MacArthur says, how do you know when someone's a Christian? Someone asks John MacArthur, how do I know if I'm a Christian? He said, what's your greatest hope? He says to be more like Christ. What's your greatest disappointment? I'm not like Christ and I keep failing. He goes, you're saved. That's how you know. When you're asking God to do all sorts of other things, you really have to question yourself. Is this about salvation? What is this about? We can ask for everything. But when we fail, there's something in us that says, God, I don't want to fail anymore. That's because he's wiped away our shame. He's taken away our guilt. He's cleaned us from our idols. He's cleaned us from our sinful filthiness. And now with this clean conscience, even when I mess up and you mess up, I'm more free to run to God than run away from God. That's the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say this in 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What religious document this is. You won't find this kind of talk in any other religion, any other philosophy no philosopher, no religious teacher could stand there before you and tell a simple people what God's going to do like this. Listen to the prophet. The prophet's speaking on behalf of God saying, I will. He says it again, I will. As a matter of fact, in these verses, he says it seven times. It says, I am, I will do this. I will draw you. I will give you. I will take from you. I will put in you. I will make you careful to obey. When I am says he will, guess what? It's done. It's done. He's not negotiating. When the great I am says, I will do this, it is done. Enjoy it. This verse speaks of the new religious affections for God. I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone that doesn't love me. I'll remove the heart of stone that doesn't uh, obey me. I'll I'll, I'll remove the heart of stone that doesn't love my people. I'm going to remove all that. And I will, the great I am, will put in a new attitude in your mind and in your heart. You will love me. That's Christianity. You can't talk somebody into loving God. You might as well talk somebody out of the grave. Only God can put that love in there. It's wonderful when you see someone turn to Christ. When you see a young believer turn to Christ, they don't even know what's going on with them. And they're talking to me, I'm like, praise God. I'm not raising my hands every time, but I'm like, praise God. Everything I hear is coming from the Bible. I can hear new religious affections. I'm glorying God's work. My whole day is fulfilled. I could care less if I got the promotion. I could care less about this. I'm listening to somebody speak to me as they just rose again from the dead. Speak to one another. How do you not speak to each other about your testimonies? How do you not share what God's doing in each other's life? That's that's miraculous. You're not going to get that anywhere else. These new religious affections 
a heart that seeks to please God as opposed to living for ourselves all the time. This is real life. The true joy. It's just there. It's in our hearts. We're not trying to conjure it up. You'd be going through the worst of times and you just start singing your, your, your Jesus songs. I got my certain Jesus songs. I sing them. Guess what? No matter what's going on, I feel safe. I feel happy. I feel joyful. I feel close to God. Or I should say, He's close to me. Yes. And no matter what's going on in our life, we have true hope. The future is always bright, even in the worst of times. And we have true peace and contentment, whether we have a little or a lot. This is what God does for us. These are true relationships built on mutual love for one another. Caring relationships. Concern for what God is doing for someone else. Prayer and worship and Bible study comes alive for a church our size. To have around 15 men every Monday night. Pastor John has about 17, I think, around there. Percentage-wise, we blow most churches away in our Bible studies. This is a church that loves the Word of God. You go to churches with 1,000 people, they'll have 50 men. I have a friend of mine who goes to a church, 2,000 people. He went to the men's group the other night, had 45 guys. I said, wow. We got 50 people and we have 15 men. We're doing pretty good. Most of our church is really understanding the word of God and has a hunger for the word of God. These are the new religious affections. We meet God in his word. God's done this for us. I will give you a new heart. How many people enjoy reading their Bible? God gave you a new heart for that. He goes on to say this in verse 27. If that wasn't enough, I'll put in my spirit, not a spirit, I will put my spirit within you. That's what it means to be born again. And cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the law. And be careful to obey all my rules. That's the fine print. When he says, I will put my spirit, he goes from a new heart and a new conscience to a new ability, this new moral, spiritual power to live for God under the worst and most trying circumstances of temptation. You can stand tall and stand strong because the word of God and the spirit of God indwells you. Again, I can ask people to come up here and give testimonies of what trying times they're going into and at the same time staying pure for God. Amen. Trying times. But they won't break the rules. Many people. From a new heart, a new conscience. Could you imagine God forgiving you but not giving you the ability to live for Him? You see, let me tell you some wonderful things that technology can do and what medicine has done for us. And my wife's a cancer survivor. And understand, some doctors and, and medicine today can save people, and it does all the time. But it can't promise you you won't die tomorrow. 
Right. Can't do that. No. See, what God does, God doesn't say, I'll forgive you. He can promise that he's going to make you walk in those statutes mm-hmm. and obey his law from the heart. Amen. See, God doesn't say you're forgiven, continue to go live in your sin. Do you know when it comes to not living in sin, this is not God trying to put out your good times by throwing cold water on us. You don't know life until you obey God. You don't know what it's about. You have no idea what it means to enjoy life until you're obeying God. He's the author of life. He gave life. He gives it all. Anything less than that is not life at all. He says he's going to cause us to walk. And cause you to walk, or that means live by my statutes. Or my rules, my legislation, my my laws. How's he going to do that? How does God do that? Well, he doesn't come and fight toe-to-toe with us like the old ways. This is, this is not the good angel or the bad angel, and you're going through this sort of scenario. Should I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I, should Sometimes life is like that. Listen, sometimes the Christian life is like that. But what God is really saying over here, this is new priority comes in. And it's like, I start to love the good and not the bad. God's working on our affections, on our passions. It's not like this... God, this is horrible. I'm a Christian 20 years. Take me now. I can never make it. Take my life now, oh God. No. No, Christians stand up because we love to live for God. I see the emptiness of my old life. I see the emptiness of the world around me. I want nothing to do with it anymore. Give me Christ or give me death. I don't, I don't want to live that the old way anymore. This world offers the Christian absolutely nothing. It can't teach me about the sacredness of sex. Matter of fact, it's, it's uh, degrading. It can't teach me about uh, uh, how to love my wife. Can't do that. Doesn't know how to do that. It doesn't teach me how to love people that don't love me. God does do that. God teaches me and empowers me how to forgive those who have hurt me. God teaches me and empowers us how to live above resentments and anger and prejudices. God does that. God shows us the emptiness of one and the beauty of himself. And the more we worship, and the closer I get to Christ in my faith, and the more beautiful he becomes, the less attractive everything else is. I get further and further away. The closer you get to Christ, the less attractive everything else is. And then he says this. And be careful to obey my rules. How is God going to make it make us careful to obey his rules? Does he twist your arm? Does he threaten you? If you don't? You see. When God gives you a new heart, and he gives you a new conscience, and he takes away the shame, and he takes away the guilt, and you feel brand new like you've been born again, the sky is brighter, the sun is brighter, the grass is greener, 
Life feels good for the first time. You feel like you're really alive. And guess what? By the Spirit's grace, you want to be careful not to lose it. I would not want to lose the deposit of God's grace in my heart for anything. At all. It's a new priority to treasure not what God has given you, but treasure God himself. Yes. That's what it's all about. To treasure God himself. He's our father. And we don't want to let him down. And we want to live for him. This is the new birth. And as a pastor, what concerns me is, and I always say this, you know, I want everybody to enjoy God. If you enjoy Jesus Christ, you are pleasing to the Father. God the Father, according to Isaiah 53, 12, was pleased to crush his son for us. Was pleased. Get the picture. God was pleased to crush the son. And I'm not going to enjoy him now? I'm not going to enjoy all the life the son gives me? Enjoy the son, you'll please the father. And at times you're looking at our life saying, God, I need more help. Who needs more help? That's part of pleasing the father. Christ has made us aware that there's still some work to be done. That we still want to be careful to obey his rules. That we still want to live in a new heart. We want to live with this, this new energy for the Lord. This new religious affections for Christ. I want to ask this question. Who's grown cold in this room? What Christian in this room has grown cold towards the Lord? Don't raise your hand. Don't have to. We're human beings. Are you with me? And we can grow cold. Who's in this room is backslidden from the Lord? You're in the congregation, but you know something? You just don't feel it, man. Something's taking place. Christian, are you enjoying Christ? Are you enjoying other believers? I enjoy coming to church and seeing people. I enjoy hearing what's going on in someone else's life. Are you enjoying worship? Or is it just the noise when we sing? Are you enjoying your Bibles? Is God teaching you? Are you careful to make it a priority? enjoy Christ. I don't go to heaven because we read our Bible. I don't go to heaven because I come to church. I don't go to heaven because I'm generous to God and I'm generous to... I don't go to heaven because of that. We do that because we're going to heaven. But God wants us to enjoy while we're here. And as a pastor that's my great concern is that you enjoy the Lord. That you enjoy the Lord. If you're enjoying the Lord I won't have to do nothing. If you're enjoying Christ, guess what? Chances are I'll never have to counsel you. Chances are. If you're really enjoying God, guess what? Half of the things that bother you in life, guess what? They're not going to bother you no more. You should be so filled with the love of Christ, you won't care about some of these things we we fret over. We fret over nonsensical things. But as a pastor, I have to realize maybe you haven't been born of the Holy Spirit. And this is your opportunity 
say, Brian, I want that life. I want that joy. I want that peace. I want that happiness. I want that true hope. I want that true direction in life. I want that true purpose in life. I want to love God. Now, most people I know here, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody's got a relationship with the Lord. But it's my job to ask you and lay it out your conscience, have you been saved? The Apostle Peter does this. Make sure of your election. The Apostle Paul says, examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. Make sure you're not going through the motions over here. That's my job. Every once in a while, Pastor John, we have to do that. This is serious to us. Serious to God. If you haven't been born of the Holy Spirit, ask Christ now to forgive you. Ask him, Lord, I want to start a brand new life with you. Ask him in your own words. Say, God, I need to be saved. And if you're a Christian, that you just lost the love for the, the word of God, the love for the saints, the love for Jesus' presence in your life, if you feel like you've grown cold, listen, you're only human. Ask the Lord. Lord, start a fresh work in my heart. Just ask him. 